Good morning. You can go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. This morning we are going to be making our first transition here in the book of Genesis. Last week we finished looking at the final day of the creation week, and so this week we are transitioning from the creation week in order to zoom in on the life and times of God's image bearers in the Garden of Eden. And this transition isn't just something that uh, I've decided to do as we go through Genesis, but as we will see today, it is a transition structured uh, or driven by how Moses himself structured the book of Genesis. Well, let's begin uh, our time together this morning by reading our passage. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Hear now the words of the only true and living God. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his holy word. You may be seated. Well, as we make this transition from the creation week to the Garden of Eden, we are going to look at today's passage over the course of the next two weeks. Today, we are going to focus our time and our attention on the first five words of verse 4. And so this is going to make today uh, seem a little different from our time in Genesis so far. Today we are going to focus on learning something about the structure of the book of Genesis. We are going to focus on how Moses takes all of the events in the book of Genesis and orders them in such a way that it guides us. And it guided the people of Israel through the book 
as they read it and as we read it and as it is heard. And so in this way, our time together this morning may feel a little unusual, but we're doing this today so that as we are going through the book of Genesis together, or as you are going through it in your own personal reading, you can see how the parts that make up Genesis fit together as a whole. So today is going to require us to flip through several different places in Genesis. So go ahead and get ready for that because we are going to focus on how these words in verse 4 of our passage are used by Moses and the Holy Spirit to set a pattern that runs throughout the entire book of Genesis. And not only is this going to have the effect of helping us read and understand Genesis better, but recognizing this pattern will also help us answer one of the most perplexing questions that people have about Genesis chapters 1 and 2. So that's what we're going to spend our time on this week. Next week, we're going to finish looking at this passage and focus our attention on all of its details and its meaning here in the book of Genesis as well as in the Bible as a whole. So let's, uh, before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer, asking for his help as we seek to do this. Let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, we come to you this morning thanking you for this day that you have made. Thank you, Father, for giving us a day to set aside our normal labors, our normal recreations, and to spend a day focused completely on your worship, completely on growing in our knowledge, in our faith in you, growing in resting in the accomplished work of your Son, growing in longing for his return so that we can enter into the eternal rest that he has purchased for us. Father, we ask as your people that you would receive our offerings of praise and thanksgiving and our prayers that we have offered up to you already as we have brought them before you in the name of your Son, trusting that he at your right hand, who is mighty, is interceding for us, and that his intercession for us is effectual. Father, we entrust ourselves to our mediator, to our redeemer. And we ask now that your spirit would help us to look at your word to see how your spirit guided your servant Moses to structure it not only for, our, for Israel's instruction but also for ours and cause that to be an encouragement to our faith Father calls it to be an inoculation for us against the lisp of Satan who always tempts your people with the question, has God really said? Father, use this day in our lives for your glory. Father, we ask these things not only for ourselves but for our 
sister churches that are gathered in different places. We ask for our brothers and sisters at Grace Reformed Baptist Church in Long Island, New York. We also lift up our brothers and sisters at Mount Vernon Baptist Church over in Boone. Father, we ask that you would be with them, that you would cause their time together today to be an encouragement, to be a day of sanctification, be a day where you work in them to cause them to will and to work for your good pleasure, that they would enjoy you, that they would enjoy the saints that your son has redeemed by his blood. Father, that they would long for the return of our King and Savior, that we could all rejoice together with one voice, with the saints and angels, the saints who have gone before us, the angels who are always around your throne singing, Holy, Holy, Holy. Father, we long for that day where your Son returns to gather us as his people together from every tribe, tongue, and nation, not here just in America, but all across the world, and not just in our generation, but from all generations, from the garden until the clouds roll back. And he returns. Oh, we long for that marriage supper of the Lamb. We long for eternal bliss of not being tempted by sin, having no desire, having no remaining corruptions of our flesh. Father, use this day in our lives as well as in the lives of our brothers and sisters to give us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness now and help us to look to the hills where our help comes from and look beyond the horizon to eternity where we are to lay up our treasures so that the things of this world would grow strangely dim. Father, we also want to lift up our persecuted brothers and sisters. This morning, we lift up your persecuted people in Pakistan. Father, we ask for your providential protection over them, that you would give them opportunities and that you would, by your providence, guide their conversations with their fellow countrymen, help them to be salt and light, that they could urge your gospel on them, and Father, that you would use them to bring all things in Pakistan under the feet of your Son, that the people there would freely offer themselves to him on the day of his power. So, Father, protect our brothers and sisters there, and as they endure things that we do not have to, we ask that you would cause them to have the mind of Christ, that they would 
seek to enter into glory through suffering and persecution and that they would count it their joy and their honor and privilege to suffer for his name. Oh, Father, protect them and provide for them. Give them your grace that they need and cause our thoughts concerning them to be an encouragement and a bolstering of our own faith. Though we do not have to endure physical blows, strengthen our weak knees to be able to endure the persecutions of being thought of as fools according to the wisdom of the West, to be thought of, to be willing to go outside the camp where our Savior is, to be thought of as being on the wrong side of history. Father, help us to have fidelity to our King. Lord, as we turn our attention now to the passage that is before us, we ask that you would help us to grow in our knowledge of your word, that that would increase our faith and that would increase our worship of you. And so, Lord, we ask and we need your help to do all these things. And so we ask for them in your son's name. Amen. Well, if I took out my contacts or did not wear my glasses and I walked outside on a crisp, clear, moonlit night, do you know what I would see? I wouldn't be able to see anything but the moon, and I wouldn't be able to see it very clearly. I wouldn't be able to see any stars, wouldn't be able to see any of the details of the moon. I would just see a big, blurry, bright light in the sky. Now imagine if I went back inside and put my glasses on and walked back out, all of a sudden, I'd be able to see more things. I'd be able to see the stars. I'd also be able to see the craters and the contours of the moon. I'd be able to see so many more things than I could without my glasses. Now imagine if I went back inside and brought out with me one of those fancy motorized telescopes, the kind that you can put in the name of a star or a planet and it will automatically turn to it in the night sky. Imagine if I had one of those and turned it to look at Saturn. What I wouldn't have been able to see at all without my glasses and would have only been able to see as a speck of light in the sky with my glasses, now, because of this telescope, I would be able to see the color of Saturn. I would be able to even see its rings, and if the telescope was powerful enough, I could even see the moons. And you can keep going with the thoughts of the awe-inspiring images that we have because of technologies like the Hubble telescope and other things. The point in using this illustration is to say that in some ways, our passage this mor morning is similar. Genesis chapter 1 describes creation from a very majestic perspective. Genesis chapter 1 is very much a big picture 
description of creation. And while there are details to be seen in Genesis 1, it's like looking at Saturn without a telescope. But this morning, as we transition from the seventh day of creation, beginning this morning in verse 4 of chapter 2, Genesis begins to zoom in. Moses is putting in the coordinates, so to speak, of the Garden of Eden as he is telescoping in on the pinnacle of creation. Mankind made in the image of God, put in a covenant place with work to do and commandments to keep. And as we will see this morning, understanding this idea of our passage as the beginning of a telescoping in on mankind, understanding this transition from big picture, chapter 1, to the grainy details of all that follows would not only help us see things more clearly as we go through Genesis, but it will also help us when we look at the question raised by what seems to be differences in the order of creation in the accounts of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. So as I said, this morning we are going to be focusing our attention on verse 4 of our passage. Look at it again with me. Verse 4 begins, These are the generations of. Now I know that at first glance this doesn't seem like a big deal. We just finished last week looking at the seventh day in Genesis 2 verse 3 and the last day of the creation week, and so this is just what's next. While that's true that this is what's next, it's also true that if we were to take the time now to read through the entire book of Genesis, we would notice something about this phrase. We would notice that this phrase, these are the generations of, gets repeated. It gets repeated in several different and important places and seems to divide the book up into what we might think of as chapters. And like chapters, this phrase, these are the generations of, move us through the book of Genesis. They conclude what has come before. They give us a big sign that what has come before has come to a conclusion and we are moving on to what's next. They are directing our attention forward. Now, this observation is not original with me. It has long been observed to be the case, so much so that the sections of Genesis, these sections of Genesis have become known as Toledot sections. They're called that because all of these sections begin with this phrase, these are the generations of, and Toledot is the Hebrew word for generations. So I want us to see this real quick, so get ready to flip through the book of Genesis. So as we're thinking about these sections of Genesis, moving us through the book, you can consider verse 4 of our passage today as the end of the first section of Genesis and the beginning of the second. So the first section is where we've been since we started back in March in the book of Genesis. Moving us, it begins in the beginning in Genesis 1-1 and ends in Genesis 2-3 with God resting from his work of creation. So in a manner of speaking, this is bit, that was the first section of Genesis. And here in chapter 2, verse 4, 
Moses moves us forward by going from the creation account in Genesis 1 and telescoping or zooming in on the reason why Genesis exists in the first place. Remember, as we've talked about, Genesis exists to teach the people of Israel and to explain to them where they come from, why they exist, why things are the way they are, why God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. So what is happening here in our passage today in this first transition in the book of Genesis? Moses is moving us and he's moving our attention from the first section of the book to the second section. From creation in big picture to telescoping in on the most important, important place in creation, the Garden of Eden. Now this is a really important point for us to grasp when we read these are the generations of. Here in verse 4 of our passage today, we are moving forward. It's important because it informs us that while Genesis 2 is obviously connected to Genesis 1, while that is true because we are moving forward, it means that Genesis 2 is best understood when we read it by considering it in its relation to chapters 3 and 4. Instead of trying to think of it as an alternative creation narrative in relation to chapter 1. And I know that may not seem like an important detail right now, but I really do want you to keep it on the back burner in your mind because it's going to come up again later and hopefully you'll see its importance then. So let's get back on track. Our first section of Genesis is 1-1 to 2-3. Our second section begins today at 2-4 and it runs all the way through the end of chapter 4. Now turn over in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5 and look in verse 1. What do you see? We can see that we have our third section. And it begins, this is the book of the generations of, or the Toledot of, Adam. And in this third section, Moses moves us from Adam to the next great figure in redemptive history, Noah, and in doing so, just like 2-4 moves us from the creation narrative of chapter 1, it moves us towards the garden and the garden narrative of chapters 2 and 3, this third new Toledot section that begins in chapter 5, moves us away from the garden narrative and towards its consequences in the flood. And we begin to see God's mercy and the consequences of his promise in Genesis 3.15 as he delivers creation and mankind in Noah and his family. Now this chapter or this Toledot section of Genesis lasts from Noah here in chapter 5 all the way to chapter 6. So turn over to chapter 6 and you'll see in verse 9, our fourth Toledot section begins, these are the generations of Noah. And it explains, this section explains why Noah, God spared Noah and his family, and it moves us through the flood narrative and to Genesis chapter 10. So turn over to chapter 10. You can see it again in verse 1. These are the generations of. 
the sons of Noah, moving us forward. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And this fifth Toledot section moves us from Noah and his sons and the children born to them after the flood. It moves us from Noah's sons all the way to the Tower of Babel in chapter 11, where the people are divided in their languages and scattered throughout the entire earth because instead of doing what they were originally commanded to in Genesis 1, to fill the earth and spread God's name and glory through the earth, as they were commanded in the garden, they decided instead to not fill the earth. They had a better idea than God. They decided to build a city. And instead of spreading God's name throughout creation, they decided to build a name for themselves and stay in one place. So God comes and scatters them. And so if you look down in verse 10 of chapter 11, you will see that this Toledot section ends and another begins as Moses continues to move us forward in Genesis. So as you can see in chapter 11, verse 10, these are the generations of Shem. And this moves us from Noah's son Shem to the next main figure in Genesis, as we can see it in, down in verse 26, where we see Terah's firstborn son, Abram. So our seventh Toledot section begins in chapter 11, verse 27, with, now these are the generations of Terah. With the point obviously being that Terah is the father of Abram, so I hope that you're beginning to see this pattern, how Moses is using these Toledot sections to move the people of Israel through their history and through the history of how God is redeeming a people from himself. He started in creation and then went to the garden and then to Noah and the flood and then to humanity after the flood, and this has led us to Abraham. Because Abraham is so important to the history of redemption and to the people of Israel, this total dot section is pretty large. We won't find the next one until Genesis chapter 25, so turn over there. Genesis 25, you will see the eighth Toledot section begins in verse 12, and it is for Abraham's son Ishmael. These are the generations of Ishmael. And this section is brief because Abram, Abraham's firstborn son Ishmael is not the son of promise. And so this brief section moves from Ishmael to the son of promise, to Isaac. And you can see in verse 19 of this same chapter that our ninth Toledot section begins, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. And this section lasts all the way to, you might guess it, Jacob. Jacob and Esau in chapter 36. Turn over there with me real quickly. Genesis chapter 36, you'll see it again in verse 1. These are the generations of Esau. And this 10th Toledot section is very brief. It's about Esau's wives, and it ends in verse 8. And Moses moves to the 11th section, stressing the fact that Esau is the father of the Edomites. In verse 9, which you can read, says, These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites. 
Now turn over to chapter 37, and you'll see in verse 2 our 12th and our last Toledot section, which begins, these are the generations of Jacob. And it focuses, focuses us immediately on Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers, who was sent down to Egypt, but would ultimately save Israel and the people of Israel from famine. And so his story, Joseph's story, explains to the people of Israel how they ended up in Egypt in the first place. So I understand that what we just went through was a lot of details, but if you've ever wondered how you should read and work your way through the book of Genesis, it would probably be a good idea to think about it to organize it in your own mind the way Moses organizes it and breaks it up for us. And as you're thinking about this, also notice that Moses, who will later instruct the people of Israel that God's words are their very life, notice that Moses has intentionally organized the book of Genesis into 12 sections. It seems reasonable to me that this is a kind of mnemonic device, a kind of device to help them remember because 12 is a very important and memorable number to the people of Israel with the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel being so prominent in Moses' writings. It seems to me that Moses divided up Genesis into these 12 sections to make it easy for the people of God to remember their history to remember the history of redemption in this book. So now turn all the way back to our passage this morning in Genesis chapter 2. So having seen how these 12 sections or chapters move us through Genesis, when we read verse 4 of our passage today, we can see how our thoughts should turn from the first section that dealt with creation at a cosmic, zoomed-out, big-picture level, how our thoughts should move from that to be zoomed in or telescoping in on the Garden of Eden. In chapters 2 and 3, Moses is leading us to move our thoughts from chapter 1 and towards chapter 3. Now, why am I still stressing this? Brothers and sisters, if you've studied your Bible for any length of time, or if you've engaged with others, especially unbelievers, on the topic of creation, one of the first things that you are going to be challenged with is an accusation of contradictory creation accounts between Genesis 1 and 2. And this challenge is brought because of the fact, if you will remember, the fact that in chapter 1, the earth brought forth vegetation on the third day, and it brought forth mankind. God made man in his image on the sixth day after he had made the animals and after the fish of the fifth day. But here in chapter 2, if you just skim the surface as you're reading along in our passage today, you will, when you read verses 5 to 7, you can come away with a surface-level reading with the impression that there was no vegetation on the earth when God created man. But he created man on the sixth day. 
He created vegetation on the third day. And not only this, but you can also see, if you look at the narrative of chapter 2, you can also see down in verses 19 and 20 that there seems to be another reversal from chapter 1. As a surface level reading could leave you with the impression that God created man before he created the beasts of the earth and the livestock and the birds of the heavens. But we know from chapter 1 that God created the birds on the fifth day and the animals on the sixth day before he made man in his image. And so the challenge comes, how can this be? The Bible's contradicting itself. See, it's right here in black and white. How do you explain this contradiction? And this is why I told you earlier to keep the fact that these Toledot sections move us forward in the narrative of Genesis. This is the structural answer to this question, and it's really important. Moses is telescoping in on the Garden of Eden in chapter 2. He's not trying to give a chronology of events, but to focus in on man as the pinnacle of creation, the reason for creation, the reason why the bushes and the plants and the animals exist, which means that our passage today is primarily to be related in our minds to chapters 3 and 4 because those are the events on which the history of mankind turn. So Genesis 2 is not trying to give us an alternative creation narrative, but it's moving us forward to the history of mankind. And because this is the case, we are not looking at Genesis 2 in the same way that we did Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is a chronology of events. Day 1, day 2, day 3, all the way to day 7, while Genesis 2 is about why redemption is necessary. So it is emphasizing the pinnacle of creation in mankind. And then it moves forward to teach us how God accomplishes redemption. Let me show you what I mean and how Moses is doing this in the text itself. When you look at verse 5 of our passage today, you can see that it says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprang, sprang up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. When you read that, you should see that the emphasis is not on a chronological timeline time of when plants and mankind come into existence, but rather on the fact that there is no man to work and cultivate the ground. There's no man to work and keep and exercise dominion, which is the point of saying that there were no bushes or plants had not yet sprang up. And so God, who commanded man to cultivate the ground in chapter 1, here in chapter 2, if you look down in verse 8, we can see that God takes man and puts him in a garden. And this should have the effect of moving our thoughts to man's work of cultivating before the fall and the toll that his work becomes when the ground is cursed for his sake after the fall. Turn over to chapter 3 with me and look in verses 17 and 19. And you can see this when it says, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain 
you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So this man who was commissioned with cultivating and keeping all of a sudden is told because of his sinful actions, thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread. So you can see how what is being said about man in chapter 2 is focusing us in on what is going to happen after the fall. Because the connections we find in the text in chapter 2 are primarily related to what happens in chapter 3. So they're moving us forward. And I quickly want to show you two other places in our passage today where you can see this. Look at verse 7 of our passage today. You can see that it says, God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. But when we see this, because this part of Genesis is moving us forward in the narrative, Moses is directing our thoughts not back to chapter 1, but forward to chapter 3. So turn over there again, and you can see in verse 19 that this man who was made from the dust in chapter 2 and given the breath of life, you can see in the second half of Genesis 3.19 that because of the wages of sin, this man who was made from dust will return to the dust. It says, return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the pinnacle of creation, mankind, made in the image of God, because of sin, is now cursed to lose the very breath of life that his creator gave him in chapter 2. And now being made from dust in chapter 2, we'll return to it in chapter 3. You can also see in verse 9 where God may, of chapter 2 where God makes every tree pleasant to the sight and good for food and the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can see how Moses is directing our thoughts forward to chapter 3 where Satan questions the goodness of God and the abundance of God that God has given him. God made every tree pleasant to the sight and good for food and Satan comes along and tempts Eve by saying God's holding out on you. This one tree that he said you can't have, he's holding out. So we can see the contrast of the bountifulness that God provides for Adam and Eve in chapter 2 and how Satan contradicts that in chapter 3 in the temptation. So I hope that after going through these 12 sections in Genesis and seeing Moses divide up Genesis for us and move us forward through the book, through these Toledot sections, Brothers and sisters, I hope that's a blessing to you to not only see how Moses intended for us to move through Genesis and how he used these sections to make Genesis memorable for us. I hope that it's not only a blessing to you in that way, but I also pray that it increases your confidence when you think about the question of why Genesis 2 seems to have a different ordering of events than Genesis 1. I hope that when you deal with this challenge that you will remember that it is because Genesis 2 is not focused on a chronological ordering of events but is focused on man's responsibility and his history. 
So I also understand that what I've just gone through, if it's the first time you've ever encountered, encountered that information, that it may take some time for you to process. And so if that's you, I want you to have that time to think about and mull over what we've gone over so far. But I also want to give you a second and more easily digestible reason, even a more foundational, important reason for why Genesis 2 is not contradicting the timeline of events in Genesis 1. So what I've already said actually builds on what I'm getting ready to tell you. This is What I'm getting ready to say is foundational for how we know infallibly that Genesis 2 is not contradicting Genesis 1. Are you ready for it? To put it in technical language, it's because Moses and the Holy Spirit are not stupid. Just think about it for a second. Moses wrote Genesis 2 immediately following Genesis 1. Do you think he's really so dumb as to mess up the ordering of events immediately? Obviously not. But there's something even more foundational And that is the fact that our King and Savior, Jesus Christ, has informed us through his Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 1 that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So according to the Apostle Peter, the all-knowing, all-wise Holy Spirit of God is superintending and guiding what Moses is writing here in Genesis 1 and 2. And it is this fact alone that guarantees that what we have been reading and talking about here in Genesis 1 and 2 is intentional. The reversing of elements from 1, chapters 1 to 2 is not some kind of mosaic oopsie but rather is it is an intentional move from chapters 1, chronological events, to chapters 2, developing of themes in order to move the reader forward through the history of redemption. And this is the answer to why we spent all this time today looking at these 12 Toledot sections. We did so to show not only do we know the answer to why the narratives of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 are different, but we can, also the, we can also discern the intention of Moses and the Holy Spirit behind it. So as I said, I know that was an unusual sermon in this Genesis series, but I hope that as we prepare to spend some time in prayerful reflection on what we've heard today, I hope that if you've ever struggled, as I have, with the differences between Genesis 1 and 2, that this has been an encouragement and a help to you. And if you haven't struggled with it yet, but you struggle with it in the future, I pray that the Lord will bring these things to mind to help you and to be a strengthening to your faith. Especially if you are a young believer or if you are regularly engaged with unbelievers about the Bible, I hope that our time together this morning has increased your confidence in the scriptures and that you will be inoculated against the doubts that unbelievers and the serpent seek to sow in the minds 
of God's people by bringing up things like this and then stepping forward to the next question, has God really said? Well, may the Lord use our time together this morning to help us read and understand his word better, to increase our faith and love for him. And next week, we're going to come back to this passage and we're going to dig into all the details of the passage as we move from looking at cosmic creation to zooming in on mankind in the Garden of Eden. Well, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I thank you, Father, that you have so put your word together that we can discern often your intentions and that digging, doing the labor of digging into your word and going through it and searching for it in it as for hidden treasures helps us to find answers to questions that perhaps we struggle with in different seasons of our life. And so, Father, I ask that you would help us as your people to consider how your Spirit guided your servant Moses to organize the book of Genesis to move us forward. And I hope that seeing this will not only help us to answer this question about the creation of Genesis 1 and 2, but also hope that it will hope that it will and plead with you to use it in our lives to give us confidence when we face other questions concerning Scripture. That though we may not immediately have the answer that this does not mean that it does not exist, I thank you that you have allowed us to stand on the shoulders of our brothers and sisters who have come before us and have devoted their lives to your word to help us see and understand things like this and how it strengthens our faith. And so, Lord, I ask that you would use it in our lives today to give us a hunger, to meditate on your word, to dig into it, to read through it. And I ask that you would use it today to prepare us for what comes next to focus our attention on your image bearer in the Garden of Eden and all that comes after it. Father, we need your help. We need the working of your Spirit in our lives to sanctify us through your word. And so we ask for these things in his name. Amen.